Good morning, everyone. How are you guys doing? So today, uh, we are going to be diving into um, everyone's favorite biblical literature type, genealogy. Uh, so we're going to dive right into Matthew 1. Now, uh, all jokes aside about genealogies, I have found that Matthew uh, 1 and this genealogy of Jesus is um, filled with incredible depth. And if you study it before, you know what I'm talking about. And if not, uh, I hope to, to surprise you in just how much is here with just a list of names. Um, and what we'll see here that it's not just a list of names, but it's the story of God's continued faithfulness throughout the generations. <coughs> Um, but before diving in, what I want to do is I want to read this section all the way through, and then I'm going to pray, ask God's help uh, as we dive into the scripture together. So, uh, Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Solomon, and Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Jerome. And Jerome, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportion to Babylon. And after the deportion to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan. And Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportion to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportion to Babylon and to the Christ, 14 generations. Uh, Father, I just want to ask that you would open up this familiar section of scripture and you would show us all that you have for us today, um, that you would show us more of your character, of who you are, and of your son Jesus, the long-waited for king. And I pray that it would move us to love you more, um, and that would change us and transform us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So as I was reading uh, this section of scripture, I was reminded of this literary trope that is common through almost 
uh, all ages when it comes to uh, some of our favorite fictional stories, especially um, loving J.R. Tolkien, anyone else who loves him, you'll know that the final book in his series, The Lord of the Rings, is called The Return of the King. Uh, and it got that name because one of the main characters was um, basically the heir to this kingdom of men, right? And the kingdom had been without a king for hundreds of years at this point, and they had been waiting for the promised heir to return and set things right. Uh, so it's interesting, as you dig into the city, as they're waiting for their king, you have some people who are waiting like, man, if only the king would show up, things would be so much better. And others are like, we don't need a king, we have the stewards. That's just a, a long tradition that, that we don't even need anymore. Uh, and, and you find this trope all throughout history. I mean, think about King Arthur, right, and the sword and the stone, and, and how even to this day there's legends in Britain about how King Arthur will return and set things right. Or think about even Robin Hood, right? Which is all about the underdog against royalty. But even they had this, this line in there where if King Richard would just return from the Crusades, Robin Hood wouldn't be needed anymore. Uh, so there's something deep in the psyche of humanity that where we, ha where we feel this need for a king to come and set things right. It's within all humans throughout all time, throughout all all nations and peoples and tongues, you'll find the story popping up over and over and over again. And I think the reason why is it speaks to a deep need. All these little stories, they point to the big story of which we're all a part of. Uh, and as we look through the Bible, we see the same theme running through all of it. And that is that humanity is in a dark place, and if only they had its true king come, then he would set things right. In fact, it starts off with a, with a simple line here, but it's laden with so much meaning. If you were an Israelite, if you were a Jew at this time, this would not mistake you. It says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, that is not Jesus' last name, by the way. Uh, that's a title. It means the Messiah. It says, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And to understand this fully, we can go all the way back to the very first book of the Bible. If we look and we see when Adam and Eve sinned and forever separated themselves from God, when they invited death and war and famine and disease and all the terrible things that came from the fall, God makes them a promise right then and there. Even after they have sinned against God, he says, this isn't the end of the story. Yes, this snake, your adversary, adversary, is going to continue to attack you throughout all the ages. But there will come a time when your son, Eve, when you will have a son, and he will be bitten on the heel, he will be attacked by the serpent, but then he will crush the head of the serpent, forever destroying the adversary of humanity. So from the very first pages of the Bible, we get this promise that even though we screwed things up badly, God has still has a plan. And then we trace that further, and we see this man named Abraham, mentioned right here, the son of Abraham. And that God pulls Abraham aside, and he says, your son, through the, your offspring, through your seed, I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth. Everyone through your offspring. And we zoom ahead a little bit, and we see that Abraham's family has become a nation called Israel. And we see that this nation has made a covenant with God, and they're supposed to be the priests. They're supposed to be a priestly nation that, 
that represents God to the rest of the world. And we think, oh, this is the fulfillment. Here comes the snake crusher. Here comes the promise to Abraham where all nations will be blessed. But if you keep reading Israel's story, you see that they fail miserably at their job. They actually become worse than the people around them and all of their sins they multiply. And so as we, we trace through Judges and we see Israel get worse and worse, they cry out once again for a king, a king to set everything right. But then they get that king, and guess what happens? They continues to get worse. But God chooses one of their kings called David, and he makes a promise to David. He says, your son I will send, and he will be a righteous king, and he will rule forever. That's where this title Messiah comes from. What the Jewish people have been waiting centuries for was this promised king who would be a righteous king, who didn't screw things up. And not only that, he wouldn't just rule for a period of time and you'd have this good kingdom. He would rule forever and ever and restore everything that was broken in the fall. But then we keep tracing Israel's history. And what happens? The kings get worse and worse and worse until it gets so bad, God destroys the nation completely takes the people out of the land and scatters them to Babylon. And so as the story progresses, we're like, Israel is asking a question. Is God done with us? Have we pushed things too far? And now he's done with us, and that promised king who's been taken off his throne, right, the promised line of kings have been taken off their throne. Do we have to promise again? And that leads us to the book of Chronicles, right? Chronicles is kind of, in our Bibles, it kind of gets overlooked. It's right after Kings, and it just seems to repeat everything. And we're like, I already read Kings. Why am I about to read this gigantic book that says the same thing? Um, But if you were a Jew at the time of Jesus, Chronicles actually comes at the end of your scripture. And that's for a reason. It's repeating the story, but it's interesting because as you see Israel progress and progress and progress, and it gets to the darkest moment where they're taken away from their land, and they're asking that question, is God done with us? You get one little paragraph of hope, and this ends their scripture. Now, one little paragraph just says this. He said, after Israel had been in Babylon for so many years of exile, the Babylonian emperor issued a decree that said, the God of the Israelites has decreed me to make his temple in Jerusalem. So I am sending a a whole host of Israelites to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild their city and to rebuild their temple. You get this tiniest glimpse of hope that no, things are bad, but God is not done yet. The king is still on his way. But that begs the question. Like, you have this whole long story, and all of it's supposed to culminate in this Messiah King who comes, but it hasn't happened yet. The Old Testament is a book in need of an ending. And what you'll see is, as the whole Old Testament, there's all these genealogies thrown in, and we have a tendency to our eyes glaze over and we just read through them. But what we've got to understand is it's tracing the history all the way back from the snake crusher and from Abraham and to David and saying, this is God still at work, still fulfilling his promise. No matter how much human beings screw up and sin, they are not messing up God's plan. He is still tracing the lineage from Eve to the promised snake crusher. And then what happens? We get to the first book of the New Testament, and what does it begin with? A genealogy, but not just any genealogy. The genealogy that begins 
the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You see, what this genealogy is about is about that Messiah king who is finally going to usher in this kingdom who will right all the wrongs that human beings have destroyed in the fall. But it doesn't just that. If we dig into this genealogy, what I find fascinating is we reveal a lot about how God is working in his character. Now, there's, there's so much more than I can possibly talk about in one sermon, but I want to highlight the interesting cases, the ones that stand out and say, why are these even put in here? Um, but before that, I do want to point out one thing. So, um, as you see, as we trace on the genealogy, the son of David, the son of Abraham, if you have read this genealogy and the other one of Jesus and Luke, you might notice something. After David, it's completely different, right? The genealogy has very, very different names between the two, between Luke and Matthew. And a lot of times skeptics bring this up and say, okay, that just disproves the Bible. They can't even get Joseph's father's name right. How are they going to get the rest of the Bible? Uh, but what they're missing is the reason they are different is because Luke and Matthew are writing two different genealogies. Matthew is trying to show that this is the king. By legal rights, he has the inheritance as the king, as the son of David. But Luke is tying it in all the way to Eve and showing that this is the human, the son of Eve that has come. And so, if we know anything about Jesus, we know that, yes, Mary is his mother, but Joseph is not his biological father. By legal rights, yes, he has the inheritance. That's why Matthew traces it through Joseph. But Luke is showing that he is the son of Mary biologically and tracing a completely different lineage. One is a Mary, and one, this one in Matthew, is of uh, Joseph. So that's why the difference is. I just want to point that out before digging in. But as we dig in, I want to show you a couple different names that show up. So if we both look at verse 3, it makes an interesting point. It says, Judah, who is the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So one thing that's interesting in this genealogy is the genealogies, if they're tracing inheritance like Matthew is to show Jesus is the rightful heir, they don't need to show the moms. That's not how it works. So when the Bible is bringing out women, it's important in the story. And they do it, I believe I counted five times in this genealogy. And the first one is Tamar. Now I know um, this is going to lead for some fun uh, discussions with parents because there's no way to edit this story down to make it more family friendly. But it's in the Bible. It's important. What do we know about Tamar if we look back? Well, we know that she uh, was given to Judah's son as a wife, but Judah's son was evil, and so he died. So Judah told his younger brothers, like, okay, give your brother an heir. Go with this woman Tamar. Well, he did something evil in God's sight as well and died. And Judah's like, I don't like how all my sons are dying off. Why don't you go? And when my youngest son dies, I'll, go, I'll give you to him in marriage. But he never does it. Well, one day, after his son is grown up, Judah is walking and he sees this woman on the side of the road. He doesn't know that it's his daughter-in-law. She is dressed up. He thinks it's a prostitute. So Judah pays for a prostitute, and that's how... Tamar has this, these two sons, these two twins. Now, when he finds that out, he, he seeks out to kill her because she was unfaithful. And what she does, though, is something very smart. Judah had left a seal 
um, to her to ensure payment. And she said, hey, this man is the man who is the father of my children. And Judah sees it and goes, oh, that's me. <laughs> All right? That's the story of Jesus' lineage right there, right? It's not something you expect from this royal line of priesthoods. Why is God bringing this out in the scripture? Um, another story that we actually just studied in Sunday school today, I think, might give us a hint. So today we heard about Judah's brother, Joseph, uh, and he is sold into slavery by his own brothers into Egypt. So once again, family line of Jesus, is, it's got some family drama in it, okay? Uh, but as we're studying this, Joseph makes a comment when he finally meets with his brothers again. He says this. He said, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. When we see Tamar's story in here, and we're, we're offended because it is, it is evil. What Judah did was wrong. But despite that, God is using it for good. That's the whole story of the scripture. When we read in Genesis how badly human beings screwed it up, but we see in Revelation how greatly God is going to restore things. The whole storyline of the Bible is this. No matter how badly, how sinful human beings get, it doesn't matter because God is using what we intend for evil for good. He's making all things new and he's making all things better. The promised king is coming and there's nothing that we can possibly do to destroy that. So when Israel was in captive and they wonder, have we gone too far? Has God given up? Right from the beginning of this genealogy saying no. No matter how much we intend for evil, God will continue to reverse that for good. You cannot destroy God's plan. I mean, what an amazingly gracious God we have that he is so grateful that he even uses our darkest moments and turns those around for our good and for our, our hope. But then it continues. We get these two names really quickly in a row. In verse 5 it says this. And Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Now, who were Rahab and Ruth? Well, if we're reading the story of the Israelites, we'll discover that when Israel came to get Israel, their land, they came to a city called Jericho. In that city, they sent spies to spy it out to go and then take the land. Now, these spies were discovered, and they went and hid in the house of a prostitute called Rahab. She hid them. And when the spies uh, were, were protected and they finally went to leave, they go, why did you save us? Why did you protect us? And she goes, all of this entire land has heard of what God has done for you in Egypt, and they are scared. And what I want is for you, uh, for me and my family, when you come and conquer us, to not destroy us as well. This prostitute and Israel had more faith than the original Israelite spies in the, in the Israelite God than they did. Isn't that amazing? And so what God did was he protected, but he didn't only just protect this woman, he, he actually made her a mother in the line of the Savior that was to come. A Canaanite woman who was a prostitute had this complete 
turn around. It, it, it just speaks to the power of God in the New Testament. So you have this prostitute, an enemy of God's chosen people, and all of a sudden, in one moment, she has redemption as she's brought into Israel, and she has a husband, and she has a child, and that child eventually leads to Jesus. But that is the story that God is trying to write with every single person. If we zoom ahead, we see all these stories, all throughout the Bible, of these questionable people who are deep in sin, and their encounter with the God of the Bible completely transforms them. That is the story that God is writing. But then we continue, and we have this um, woman by the name of Ruth. Now, Ruth is probably the best romance book in history, so I encourage you uh, to read it, but it has the added benefit that it is true. Um, but if you're tracing Israel's history, you see once they get into the promised land, you get this book called Judges. Judges does not look kindly on Israel, okay? They all of a sudden, the promised people have their promised land, and what happens consecutively over generation, over generation, over generation, it gets worse and worse and worse. We like to pull out the fun stories from, from judges about Samson and some of the other judges and heroes because they make fun action stories. But the point of the book, whole book of Judges is to show how each generation of Israel gets worse and worse and worse. In fact, by the end of it, the last five chapters are completely devoted to the most dark and horrific sins that Israel has ever committed. Go back and look. Look at the last five chapters of Judges and you'll see that they are in such an incredibly terrible spot. Then you get to Ruth. Ruth is written in the same time period, and it's meant to be a pause. And it's meant to say, even though Israel keeps getting worse and worse, God is still working through faithful people even in this time. And so you get this picture of Ruth, who is a Moabite, by the way, who is an enemy of the people of Israel, and yet she's brought in, and when she marries... An Israelite husband who dies, her, her mother-in-law says, Go, I have nothing to give you. I'm poor, I'm destitute, I'm a widow. Go and marry again. And she says, No. From now on out, your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. In one moment, she declares this covenant that makes her a better Israelite than all of the chosen people during the time of the judges. If we look and we see her actions, she is following the law of God that was meant to be, make a righteous people. A Moabite, an enemy of God, brought an end to God's people. And we're reminded in that moment that what God is doing is not just with one people group. He is taking in the whole world, and he has faithful people in all, all nations and tribes and tongues. And so he brings in Ruth, and what we see is the story of an incredible amount of grace and righteousness shown from Ruth and shown from uh, Boaz, and then God uses that to eventually lead to Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong, there are parts of the story that are kind of uh, interesting as well. Leave you to read that. Let's just say, um, as much as Ruth's mother-in-law wanted to help Ruth, um, telling her to go and sleep next to the feet of a drunken guy is never good dating advice. So, uh, But... Despite that, once again, what people intended for evil, God intended for good. And so he took the faithfulness of this Moabite woman who loved her mother-in-law deeply, who chose to love God's people and to love 
the God of Israel. And he took her into his family and eventually into the line of the Messiah that he was sending. And that's when we get to the King David, who's an interesting man. This is the man that God chose and said, you are a man after my own heart. And because of that, one of your sons is going to sit on a throne forever and be the Messiah, the righteous king who brings the righteous rule and the righteous kingdom. And yet, despite being a man after God's own heart, we get to this next line. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, it doesn't even mention Bathsheba's name. Um, and, and a lot of, a lot of um, teachers in the past have pointed that out, that they're like, uh, this is against Bathsheba. They don't even mention her name. But I don't think that's true. I think when we read this, it says the wife of Uriah because it is reminding us of the most evil thing that David ever did. He took a man's wife. By the way, Uriah was a Hittite, also not an Israelite. He took this faithful soldier who wasn't even an Israelite but was serving him and David's army, and he stole his wife. Now, when they, David found out that this woman was pregnant, he's like, man, I'm in trouble. Why don't I bring Uriah back from the front lines, get him drunk, he'll go sleep with his wife, and all's the better. No one will even know, except that even after David shoved the alcohol on this man, he was still more righteous than David and still more honorable than David. And if his people were on the front lines fighting, he wasn't going to go enjoy the comforts of home. And so David's like, well, now what did I do? And so what David did was this faithful man, this faithful man who wasn't even an Israelite yet was more honorable and righteous than him, he had him killed. And so forever in the genealogy of Jesus, this sin is magnified. And I think that does two purposes. One, it honors Uriah. Yes, um, Uriah got the raw end of the deal. He was sinned against greatly. But we serve a God who is just and he will not let injustice and oppression go unspoken for. He will always redeem it. And so forever we have this picture of the faithfulness of Uriah. But more than that is saying something else. It is saying, once again, no matter what human beings intend for evil, God will bring it about for good. God can redeem us in even our most dark and cruel sins. No one is left out, no matter how far you have gone. And so we get the line of Jesus, the Messiah, the waited-for king, is from Solomon, who is the, who's from the wife of Uriah. Now, if we're continuing this genealogy down, there's so many kings in here and so many stories. Good kings, bad kings, evil kings who turn good because God confronted them. I mean, it's just incredible. Read through this and reread through Kings and Chronicles, and you'll see the faithfulness of God despite the evilness of man. Um, but there's one more name I want to point out before we get to Mary, and that is Zerubbabel. Now, I don't know, unless you're really well read in your Old Testament, you might not know who this guy is. Um, so I want to point him out. Zerubbabel, uh, when the Israelites were sent back from ba Babylon, he was in charge. Zerubbabel was in charge of rebuilding the altar and laying the foundation for the temple. 
Now, what the temple was for Israel was it was where God's presence was with God's people. That is what the temple represented. And the altar was the same thing where you offered, made these offerings to God. Zerubbabel, when he came back, he rebuilt the altar and he relayed the foundation for the temple. And you get this interesting story where, yes, there is hope. And so all the Israelites who come back, they rejoice for joy. But the older ones, who had seen what it was in its former glory before it was destroyed, they weep because they know, yes, we're rebuilding it. Yes, it is back, but it is not what it was before. And so you get this weird moment in the history at the end of the scripture, at the end of the story, where you have both hope and both weeping because man's sin had screwed things up so terribly, and yet there was still hope that God would come and redeem it all. And so when we get to Jesus, this, this name, uh, weirdly enough, is shared between both genealogies. There's a couple of theories of why that is, um, but one thing to point out is they're making a point, and that point is this temple and all that it was representative of God's presence, even in the midst of a sinful people, Jesus came, and he wasn't like Zerubbabel who just rebuilt the altar and the foundation of an inferior temple. He fulfilled the meaning of the temple. You see, God's presence was no longer in a geographical place. God's presence, because of Jesus, now resides in every single one of his followers. No longer in one city, but spreading out throughout the entire world to every people group, every language throughout all time from Jesus until now. God is fulfilling his purpose that he made all the way back to Abraham that one of your descendants will bless all of the nations. Not just bless them, but bring the very presence of God to a people who have fallen into sin and who without this hope would be forever separated. That's the hope that this genealogy is bringing, is that what was broken in the fall can actually be undone. Where we used to walk with God in the cool of the day in the garden, sin forever took that from us until his presence showed up again. And that is what the son of Zerubbabel is bringing. Not just a physical temple and a geographical place, but the fulfillment of the temple the actual presence of God within us, and we take it to every nation, tribe, and tongue. But then we get to probably the most incredible name on here, and that is the Son of Mary. You see, the interesting thing about Jesus' story is that Jesus is God himself become a human being. We say the story so much, I think we forget about that. God himself, the Son of God, eternal decided to step into humanity. And not just for a time, it says that from that moment, right at the turn of B.C. and A.D., right at the turn in a little tiny forgotten town in the Middle East, God forever entered into humanity. And even today, in God's presence, sitting beside his Father, he's still fully and completely a human being. That is the sacrifice God made for us. Human beings screwed everything up, and we had no possible way of connecting to God. So God decided to stoop down and connect to us. 
He became a human being, and for all eternity, he will be completely a human being. That doesn't take away from him being God, but he became a human so that we could feel him, that we could hug him, that we could see him, so that he could actually, we could actually be assured that he understood us because he was fully a human being in every single way in a fallen world. He was even tempted to sin, it said, and yet he didn't sin. He can sympathize with us when we fall into sin because he has experienced the fullness of that temptation. And we have this forever God and human being sympathizing with us that we can see face to face forever into eternity. That is the miracle of this gospel story. That is the miracle of Christmas. I mean, why would he do that? Human beings have betrayed him at every single turn. I mean, look at the Bible. Every single time God reaches down in mercy to us, we eventually just spurn his grace. We turn away from him. We become worse than we've ever been before, and yet God still makes this incredible ultimate sacrifice where he enters into humanity, lives a full human life, and then even more amazingly, he takes the punishment for every single one of our sins onto himself, and he dies. And we know this. God, who is the source of life, when he enters into death, what's going to win? Life. And so not only did he die for our sins, but he rose again. That way, every single follower of Jesus, from now into eternity, can have life forevermore in Jesus. This is what the genealogy is about. The return of the promised king, the long-waited-for hope. Now, I know we can look around now and we say, yeah, but things, things aren't better yet. I mean, warfare is still going on, disease is still going on, corruption and evil seems to multiply, right? Um, yeah, we're protected a little bit in America from some of the most atrocious acts of war and genocide, but that doesn't mean that it's not going on right now around us, right? And so we're like, wait, if the king came, why is, where's his kingdom? And that's the great thing. The Bible says that when he returned to his father, he's preparing a place for us, and he will return, and he will bring full satisfaction and full consummation of uh, of this kingdom, right? But he's waiting because he wants each of us to be in the kingdom. In other words, God is writing this incredible story of redemption, and he's inviting us into it. And so if you are not a follower of Christ, and you're wondering, what is this whole Christian thing about? This is what it's about. We've seen that humanity is completely unable to reconnect with God because all we do left to our own devices is become more and more evil. But God became a man so that he could sympathize with us in our weakness and he invites us into his story where he forgives our sins for free. All we have to do is turn to him and live the rest of our lives for him. So what I want to do here when I close in prayer is I want you guys to think of the story and to spend time thanking God for this incredible sacrifice of sending his son and, and, and for writing this incredible story. But if you're not a Christian, um, I encourage you to, to ask yourself, why not? What's holding you back from right now, this day, 
choosing to enter into God's story, to accept this free forgiveness and this free life transformation offered by the son of David, the son of Abraham, the promised Messiah. So I'm going to close this in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this incredible story you're writing. And I know like, we only scratched the surface of all the depth in this genealogy right now. But I pray that we would spend this Christmas season uh, and we would just meditate on the meaning of your son and his uh, entering into humanity for our sakes and that you would use that and you would send your spirit to just change our hearts and our minds so that we would truly receive the best gifts of gift of Christmas that you have ever sent, Father, uh, in Jesus. Amen.